This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right. Well, it's interesting. Gentlemen just mentioned the Harbor 60 Steakhouse, which is where every Friday at lunch we gather, you know, for the most part. It's the not quite the Algonquin Roundtable, which I use as a test drive for this panel. That's actually how that works. This is the Algonquin. This this is is the, yeah, you guys are the Algonquin Roundtable, the Harbor 60. Yeah, maybe not so much, although uh, it's always a fruitful discussion. And then, you know, we toss out the things that really won't stick and I run them by you. But uh, this is a place... I hate to admit, but I'm going to be back because uh, I'm going to the hockey game tonight. This is one of those things where the first preseason game in town is on with the Sabres here. It's a home and home. And so uh, I thought I'd drop down and take in the action. But uh, right across from the Scotiabank Arena, it's always very, very convenient and always uh, another great way of making uh, a good night even better and great at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse, where their mission is to offer you nothing but the absolute best, and they do that in spades. And I have to say, uh, I was talking to the owner at lunch, Ted, who was really, really fastidious about every aspect of his operation. And Mr. Nicolau ensures that, you know, uh, everything, it's, well, the food is exemplary, goes without saying, uh, but the contemporary design, what they've done, updating everything there. Every couple of years, he he goes the extra mile and does that at uh, great expense, but obviously to the enjoyment of the clientele. Harbor 60 Steakhouse is in the iconic Harbor Commission building right at the foot of Bay Street across from the Scotiabank Arena. With plenty of parking there, the valet will take care of everything, and you've got a must-and-fuss-free night. Uh, let me get back into it. Some of the things that were addressed earlier today... Uh, Well, we were talking about this gun proposal that the Trudeau liberals, or Justin Trudeau, was in town to uh, put forth, and I guess uh, it was on the Danforth, the site of the shooting, as you know, Peter, full well. uh, Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, uh, Alexander the Great Park, Logan, and the Danforth. But they've they've talked about a red flag law, too. Uh, One of their promises is to prevent people suspected of posing a danger to themselves or others, including their partners or children, from possessing or acquiring new firearms. How does that work? I mean, uh, it sounds to me rather nebulous. How do you suspect it opposing a danger to themselves? By what criteria would you start to, uh, you know, call the cops on somebody? Yeah, no, it sounds very nebulous, and I'd actually have to read what they're proposing I to be able did. to... <laughs> and if that's all they're proposing, it's very nebulous. It's hard to comment on. Well, no, I mean, but... I, no, seriously, John, that, I hear all kinds of proposals all the time, as do my colleagues at this table. Uh, but sometimes it's just so vague that it's hard to say, really, is this going to do anything at all? Or is it going to be a huge, problematic, big brother kind of situation? Yeah, I don't know. I was going to say, well, how would you make it workable? In the States, but, they're well, having I, the same discussion. But I'm not even going to suggest how you make it work. I mean, it, from from my experience, and again, the follow-on to the shootings on the Danforth, it's pretty clear that we need a substantial investment in mental health services, and that I haven't seen. We've seen cuts at the provincial level. If you're going to deal with guns and gangs, you have to invest in youth, mm-hmm. and again, we've seen cuts at the provincial level. You have to deal with all these social all right. problems but in and the case, mental health in problems. in the case of Mr. Hussein, who went down the Danforth and took yeah. out two lives and whatever, so it would have been incumbent upon his family to phone it in and report him. Well... I'll tell you something right now. I had people come in to talk to me after that massacre whose family members they were very frightened about and have tried to get treatment for, and there was no way to get treatment for them. Well, we're talking here, the liberal assumption is that you call it in and you take the guns away. If they have any kind of weapon, you take it from them, you confiscate it. Yeah, but the reality is if there's not people out there to provide treatment, 
uh, to actually deal with these problems in a substantial way, you're not going to deal with them. Well, okay, uh, it's a, a case of chicken and the egg. But if you've got somebody, and I thought uh, if you're already, I guess, in a system where there is mental illness, you don't qualify for gun ownership. Am I wrong about that, Mike? Well, no, I'm not sure about that. And I think what you're talking, what they're talking about here is the person may be getting some help or maybe have, have flags. But you know, if the the brother or sister in the house has you know guns in the house or whatever else, then what's to stop them going and take those guns? I mean, one of the things, and again, I I I'd, I want to see more specifics and the details of how this gets assessed. But, you know, from a 30,000 feet, yeah, I actually, I support the, the notion of this because one of the things is if you look at all these, especially in the United States, you see these mass shootings in the United States. How many times have we heard, oh, the police had been to the house, oh, there was mental health issues, this guy had threatened people before? And almost in every instance I can think of, I think even back to that, you know, the massacre at Sandy Hook there, where the, the, the young man had been, you know, Adam Lanza. Yeah, had been, you know, multiple times. So, you know, I would come back to the thing and say, you know, in terms of a society, we have an obligation to protect people as best we can. And if you have somebody who's, you know, that, you know, has serious issues or has made threats, why would you let them keep guns? Well, okay, uh, how you're going to develop criteria that's hard and fast that says, uh, you know, that guy over there, the neighbor, ought to be taken, his well, guns ought to be taken away and he ought to be red flagged. Uh, I'm curious. But, but we've seen that in the United States in the last, I think, the last month or so. There's, there's articles where people, mothers and fathers, have self-reported, and they said at least 30, I think it's 30 uh, instances where young people were, were had indicated what they were going to do. Parents or friends or relatives had found out about it, and they maintained that they'd stopped potential actions of that uh, kind. But unlike, I think unlike the U.S., though, our, our situation is a little different in that ours are much more gang-related, our shootings. And, and there, are, there are situations, of course, like the Danforth and others. For the where most part, I would agree. Where, yeah. where, where there are some issues, and, and certainly mental health comes into play and in, in ensuring that that's there. But but in most cases, like the sort of the Simcoe weekend events, there, there are a lot of it are gangs-related, especially here in Toronto. And I think that's where the crux of the problem is. And I think that, you know, ending ending automatic bail for, for gang members and identifying gangs in the criminal code and revoking provo- parole for gang, like, things like that, uh, like send the message that says, look, if you're a gang member and you get you get, you get get charged with, you're out on bail within the next two or three days and you're doing it again. Well, so, uh, that's what Shear is uh, suggesting. You know, these uh, bans don't necessarily work. So uh, he says, you know, you've got to treat it through the justice system and uh, how you deal with on that. But I'm kind of curious that uh, there was the uh, Toronto Police Services Board came out with... Uh, a policy today, actually, they greenlit it, that they're going to start collecting data, the police are, uh, on any interaction with the police, except for those who commit crimes. Now, isn't that a colossal loophole? I mean, why wouldn't you collect data on those who commit crimes as well? Well, I think your bigger problem is that you've got people of color being harassed, frankly. Um, well, all right, let's, and, no, let's, and, let's not be disingenuous. Sometimes there are visible minorities who commit crimes. Why can't you put that into the database? To tell you the truth, John, the bigger problem we have right now is a discrediting of the police because they card or harass Is that the people. bigger problem this, or was it the 136 shell casings in Brampton I in think broad that, daylight the other night? Well, I don't think, frankly, that the race tracking that you want to put in place is going to have any no, impact on that. Let's you, all be... You act, no, just a second. You need to actually invest in communities so that people have a very different life path ahead of them, and that's not happening. But you also got to know who's committing crimes, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you're putting and, your head uh, in the sand here, Peter. Are you telling me that we should be tracking black people because they're committing more crimes, John? No, is that I, where you're going? I, I'm going to re-engineer that and say, if in fact they're shown to be committing crimes, then let's track that. 
Well, frankly, I would say that a race-based analysis of crime is not going to do you any good in the United States. Then why is it, where, why is it where, valid in the United just, States just where they collect- put a lot more money into police and prisons than we do? They have much higher crime rates than we do, where they have a much more systematically racist approach to it. They don't reduce their really? criminal activities. They have a much higher level. Well, these are if Democrat you- cities, though, Chicago, Baltimore, St. Louis. Uh, and no, seriously, and they well, back the police Houston, off. They've backed the police off. But Michael, no, they don't back the police off. You have huge incarceration me. rates in the, the United States. The police and you are know not as actively most, engaged. The most people in prison per capita than anywhere in the world. Maybe South Africa is worse or was worse under apartheid. Very high. Putting more police in prisons in places is not going to solve this problem, and it hasn't anywhere in the world. It well, doesn't you know, do it. What else is a curiosity to me is how do you define the actual race of the individual. They might, you're going to need to have Ancestry.com in the prowl car, you know, with the CPIC system. Uh, let's. I okay. think that the, the the intent of this, and I, I suspect this is the intent, I'm not particularly uh, briefed on this, but I think the, the, the logic or the, what's behind this is not we're not going after people who are getting arrested. What we're looking and seeing is why are people being stopped? If you're having, you know, 60% African-Canadian people being stopped, and, you know, 20% of the charges, well, there's something wrong there. And I think the idea here is to see why are people being stopped? Is there a disproportionate number of, of uh, particular people based on race or whatever else it is that are being stopped by the police? And, and why, if that's the case, then why is that happening? Well, all right. Well, uh, but what do you do if it's proactive policing and uh, they want to get into troubled communities where maybe uh, the community itself wants to invite the police in? There seems to be a disconnect here, and we're not deterring these guns and gang-type activities uh so i'm just yeah, saying I, maybe I, I would just say john that it's step one and i think it's it, 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 this this has been in 40 years in the making this particular this particular law that finally got passed and it's certainly going to give the police a bit more of a tool or some tools in their toolbox to be able to do at least a bit of an assessment and sort of make sure that that race relations with police is working better and stronger and have better understanding and more data uh but you know i do think it's kind of weird that they don't they don't broaden it to, to those that commit crimes as well. But I do think it's a step one in, in a direction that's going to give police a bit more understanding of how they deal with with uh, uh, you know different races within the and community. And this is not the only thing we're doing. I mean, Deputy Chief Peter Ewan has been working on this diligently for the last couple of years, but the whole notion of a neighborhood officer program, they're going into these neighborhoods now and it's going to be, you know, they're going to be there assigned there for up to four years, connecting with people, with businesses and everything else. And, you know, even as I understand it, having cell phones where people can hand out their cell phone numbers. So, you know, there is a, there, there's, it's not just this stuff's happening in a vacuum. And as I say, the, you know, Deputy Chief Ewan has, has really been leading this and vigilantly doing this and it's in place now. Will people give them a cell numbers you think michael oh no no the other way around it's the police, the police giving them their, their cell, cell numbers, numbers. Oh, right i'm just kind of curious if in fact uh, this is going to be a foregone conclusion that's all i'm asking yeah. well no i i think that the intent here is to determine why are people being disproportionately being stopped yeah and they are yeah. all right uh final exit question because we've got about uh, 30 seconds on this matter of the day of global strikes in all the cities around the world for, uh, I guess, action on climate change. The 16-year-old from Sweden sort of uh, spearheading this. It's been likened to an anti-apartheid movement or even the civil rights movement. You agree with that, Tabins? Yeah, I would. I, it's young people fighting for their futures and for all of our futures, and I'm very pleased they're doing it. As opposed to being, say, cynically co-opted by uh, an activist agenda of uh, lefties and so on and or so forth. Or just being <laughs> apathetic and passive in the face of a crisis. I, I, equating the two is just completely wrong. I, I, you know, this is, this is a strike on climate change versus apartheid. I think it's totally wrong to sort of equate them in the same sentence.
Michael? I think it's just good that people, young people are involved in anything like that. Causes like that. <laughs> them out of trouble, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, <laughs> and doing you good, knew that frankly, was And doing a lot of good. We're done for the day and the week. Another great one for Talk Radio. Thank you all, panel, as well as Dusty Lawless and Mary Feely, and you. Enjoy the weekend. We're back on Monday. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.